All right, good morning, church family. Um, once again, uh, let me invite you to find your seats. And as, as, as you find your seat, uh, if you would open your Bibles or type in your devices, the Gospel of Mark. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. So as you find your seats, if you'll turn there or type that in. The title of the sermon this morning is Offended at Jesus offended at Jesus. So let's read our text. I'll open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the sermon this morning. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, if you'll follow along in your copy of God's Word. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Hoseas, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went, he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And we'll stop there. If you will pray with me. Lord, as we continue to uh, read about and to study and apply the life of your son, Jesus, please teach us this morning, God. I pray that everybody who is here, who who reads these words and who read the life of Christ, that they would not be offended at Jesus. God, I know how easy it is um, to come to you and to be offended at your will your commands, your standards, or even just who you are. I pray, God, that you would help us to uh, put aside that temptation this morning, especially if there's anybody here who does not know you, Lord, that nobody would walk away offended at who you are, who, who your son Jesus is, but that we would receive him, receive him as a treasure, receive him as our Lord and Savior. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, This morning, uh, we get to a new story. Uh, Last week, we looked at uh, two stories kind of sandwiched together in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus uh, heals two people. This woman who has been had a bleeding discharge for 12 years and this little girl who is 12 years old and he raises her from the dead. And now um, we're going to get to a brand new story this morning. And so I'm going to give exposition of the text. 
I'll go through it verse by verse, and then I want to give application at the end of that. So let's start in verse 1 here. Uh, exposition to explain the text, and then I'll apply it to us. Mark 6, 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, as we looked at last week, in chapter 5, Jesus was most likely in the city of Capernaum. Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee, on the northwest shore. But he leaves that place, and now he's going to travel to his hometown. Now, if you remember, Jesus' hometown is Nazareth. It's about 25 miles to the south of where Capernaum is. So Jesus has a little bit of a journey to travel there. If you remember, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. That's where Joseph's family is originally from. Uh, he's of the line of David. Uh, but he is raised in Nazareth because that's where Joseph and Mary currently live. And that's where he grew up. That's why he's often called Jesus of Nazareth. There was nothing significant about Nazareth. Remember what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now that's ironic because the irony is that the greatest thing in the history of the world came out of Nazareth. Now Jesus may be from Nazareth, but when he begins his ministry, he does not spend very much time there. Jesus grows up there, but once he starts his ministry, he really stays away from Nazareth. He rarely goes there. Why? In, Mark, in Matthew 4, 13, uh, Matthew writes, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. That's kind of his ministry home base is in Capernaum. But Jesus, at least on two occasions, returns to his hometown. This is one of the occasions where he goes back home to Nazareth and all 12 of his disciples come with him to return to his hometown. Look at verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he begins to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So as was his custom, Jesus goes into the synagogue. It is the Sabbath. That's what he did on the Sabbath. He went into the synagogue, and he begins to teach them in the synagogue. Now keep in mind, this is where Jesus grew up. He grew up in there. We know baby Jesus we know adult Jesus, but these people in Nazareth, they knew toddler Jesus. They knew teenager Jesus. They knew 20-something Jesus. And so when the people hear him teach, they are astonished. They are amazed, astounded at his teaching. The people ask three questions. Number one, where did this man get these things? Now, these things probably refers to teachings or ideas. Like they're asking, where did he get these teachings? Where did he get these ideas? Now, if you remember, the rabbis, they didn't teach of their own teaching. All they did was interpret the Mosaic law. They just took the Torah, the Mosaic law, and they interpreted it for the people. That's all they did. But Jesus comes and when he teaches, he brings his own teaching. He brings a new teaching to the people. And so they're wondering, where did you get this teaching? Number two, what is the wisdom given to him? Now, they recognize that this is a different kind of wisdom. This is not like the wisdom that the, all the other rabbis taught with. And, and, and they're perplexed by this because they know who Jesus is. They know that he is not a trained scholar. In John 7, 5, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? 
And so they're, they're perplexed by this. And number three, they say, how are such mighty works done by his hand? Which is going to prove to be ironic again, because in just a few verses, Jesus is going to stop doing mighty works among them. Now, I want you to see that these three questions that they ask in verse two, they can either come from a heart of wonder or they can come from a heart of doubt and suspicion. And we're going to see that it comes from the latter. When they ask these questions, it's not from a place of wonder. It's from a place of doubt and a place of suspicion. Look at verse three. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Hoseus and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now remember, they started off being astonished, but they do not stay in a place of astonishment. Their amazement quickly turns to offense. They took offense at him. What does that mean and why? Why did they take offense at Jesus? The word for offense here means to shock through word or action, to give offense to, to anger, to shock. Here's an idea. Suppose your coworker got promoted, but you had worked at the company longer than them. You worked harder than them. You had more responsibility than them, but they got the promotion. Most of us would be offended, right? Maybe rightfully so. I don't know. They are offended at Jesus in this way. Now, why? Why do they take offense at Jesus? Because he is a carpenter. He is not a Pharisee. He is not a Sadducee. He is not a trained rabbi. He is a carpenter. Maybe some of them were thinking in their head, I know you. You built some chairs for my neighbor. And you come in here and you presume to lecture us? We, look, we know who you are. Your mother is Mary. Your brothers are James and Jose and Judas and, and Simon. And, and listen, all your sisters, they're still here. They all still live in Nazareth. We know who you are. Now, I want you to notice the fact that they do not mention his father, Joseph. That actually may be a subtle swipe at Jesus. They may be, may be insinuating that he is an illegitimate child. And that may be what they're getting at when they say that. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Now Jesus responds to their offense with his own proverb. This again is ironic. Because Jesus is teaching, they are offended at his teaching, and so he responds to their offense with more teaching. <laughs> Jesus calls himself a prophet here. He acknowledges that prophets are always honored when they enter a town, at least in some measure. It was very common that if a prophet would enter a town, they would be honored because they're a prophet in some measure, except in two cases. He says, A, in his hometown, and B, among his relatives and among his own household. Now, we've already seen that Jesus' biological family, they did not honor him. Remember in Mark 3.21, they went out, his family went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. His own family did not honor him. Now, James later, and Jude, if it's the same Jude, later do get saved. But initially, his own brothers did not believe in him. They thought he was crazy. 
John writes in John 7, 5 that they didn't believe in him. Now, this is nothing unique to Jesus. Jeremiah went through the same trials. Jeremiah 12, 6, reading from the Net Translation. As a matter of fact, even your own brothers and the members of your own family have betrayed you too. Even they have plotted to do away with you. Jeremiah's own family rejected him and were even plotting to do away with him. So Jesus is in good company with the prophets. Look at verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. Now Jesus did lay his hands on a few sick people in Nazareth and healed them. Which means that even in this town that overwhelmingly rejected Jesus, there are still a few who have faith. Still a few. But overall, the town primarily rejected him. Therefore, he could do no mighty work there. Now, when you read that, do not interpret that to mean that Jesus is physically incapable of doing a mighty work there. Able can also mean permitted. Able can have that sense. Let me give you an example. If one of my sons has a bunch of schoolwork to do, and I tell him, you are not allowed to go outside and play with your friends until you get your schoolwork done. And so as he's working on schoolwork, someone comes and knocks on the door and says, hey, can you play outside? And what does he say? No, I'm not able. That doesn't mean he's physically incapable of going outside. He perfectly is. He's not permitted to go outside. Jesus is not permitted to do a mighty work there. Now, why is he not permitted? Matthew sheds light on this. In Matthew 13, 58, and he did not do many mighty works there because, because of their unbelief. God the Father does not permit Jesus to do a mighty work there because of their unbelief. Now, here's an interesting question. If they don't believe, wouldn't that be all the more reason to do a mighty work? so that they would believe, right? Like they don't believe, so do a mighty work so that they would believe. Wouldn't that be logical? But as Abraham said to the rich man in Luke 16, 27, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, Jesus will not do a mighty work there because if they do not believe his teaching, they will not believe him if he does a mighty work. Look at verse six. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he marveled. Jesus marveled. Now just stop and think about that. I find that fascinating. God marveled. It means to be extraordinarily impressed or disturbed by something. There are only two times where Jesus marveled, and they both center around faith. Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith, and Jesus marveled at Nazareth's lack of faith. Those are the only two times that Jesus marveled that we're told. Now, I want you to notice that it wasn't just that they had little faith. It, the problem was not that they had little faith. The problem was they had no faith. That word unbelief there in the Greek literally means no faith. Jesus 
came home, but Nazareth does not throw him a homecoming dance. But fear not, Jesus does not let his hometown's rejection discourage him. He is not trying to win a popularity contest. He is not trying to get elected. In fact, he is on mission to elect. He moves on and goes to the surrounding villages and continues teaching all of the surrounding villages. Look at verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, up until this point, it appears that the disciples have primarily, if not solely, been at Jesus' side. It appears that they have not ventured out into the world yet. They have just been walking with Jesus. But like a mother bird, it is time to nudge them out of their nest and to spread their wings. I want to draw your attention to these three verbs in verse 7. Called, send, and gave. Called, send, and gave. Number one, he called the twelve called them to himself. Just as Jesus calls us to salvation, he also calls us to ministry. Not just like full-time ministers. All of us are called in Christ to ministry. Number two, he began to send them out two by two. They are sent out by Jesus. The word for sent out here is apostello. It's where we get the word apostle. Apostle means sent. Why did he send them out two by two? Because as Ecclesiastes says, two are better than one. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 10. And number three, he gave them authority over unclean spirits. Jesus gave them the ability to cast out demons just as he did. Now, just as a side note, this means that Jesus also gave Judas the ability to cast out demons. This is why Jesus says that on that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Matthew 7, 22. Verse 8 to 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and did not put on two tunics. Now, Jesus here gives them specific instructions. He tells them there are four things you may take. There are four things you may not take. Here are the four things you can take. You can take a staff. You can take sandals. You can take a belt. You can take a tunic. You may take those four items. You may not take bread. You may not take a bag. You may not take money. You may not take an extra tunic. Now, why does Jesus give them these specific instructions? I think there's two possibilities here, two, or at least two. Number one, there is perhaps an allusion to the Exodus. These are the exact same four items that they are allowed to take when they leave Egypt. And maybe Jesus is giving an allusion to the Exodus here. Or number two, this is from a commentator named Edwards. He says, if they go with an elaborate support system and provisions for every eventuality, then they need not go in faith. And apart from faith, their proclamation is not believable. Perhaps Jesus wanted them to trust him for their daily bread. Look at verse 10 to 11. And he said to them, 
Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and if they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So Jesus gives them further instructions here. He says that whenever you enter a, a local town, I want you to find a house that's willing to put you up, right? That, that, that they'll, they'll let you stay there and they'll put you up. And then he says, uh, when you go to that house, stay in that house until you leave that region. Now, why does he say that? I think Jesus doesn't want them jumping from house to house. Why does he not want that? I think perhaps Jesus is wanting to distance them from the itinerant preachers who would jump from house to house praying on people. He says, if a place will not receive you, if they will not listen to you, you are not to call down fire from heaven, James and John. Jesus says, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet. Shake off the dust that is on your feet. Now, why? Why are they to do this? This is to serve as a testimony against them. Now, what does that mean, a testimony against them? Jesus clarifies this in Matthew 10, 14. Jesus says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah rejected the preaching of Abraham. And as great as that sin was, it is a greater sin to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we actually see Paul do this. When Paul went to Poseidon Antioch in Acts 13, 50-51, the Jews stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of the district. And what did Paul do? They shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went on to Iconium. We see Paul put Jesus' words into practice. Look at verse 12 to 13. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the disciples did just as they were commanded. They took three actions. Number one, they proclaimed a message of repentance. Now this was John's message. This was Jesus's message. And now it is the disciples' message, a message of repentance. Number two, they cast out many demons. So we see that Jesus's authority is effective. That they're able to actually go and cast out demons by the power of Jesus. And number three, they healed many who were sick. Not only did they heal, Matthew tells us that they're even able to raise the dead, Matthew 10, 8. And so Jesus sends them out to do the work of ministry. And we're going to stop there with our exposition of the text. Application. I have nine truths of application, nine truths. Here they are. Number one, there is no wisdom like Jesus's wisdom. There is no wisdom like Jesus's wisdom. As I said in the, uh, the exposition, when Jesus comes in and begins teaching in the synagogue, they ask this question. They say, what is the wisdom given to him. Now, as I mentioned, that can be said from a place of wonder where you say, what is this wisdom? Or it can be said from a place of doubt and suspicion. Like, what is this wisdom? 
They obviously say it with the, the latter. We all want wisdom, don't we? We're all seeking wisdom. Wisdom in our marriages. Wisdom in our parenting. Wisdom in our finances. Wisdom in what school to go to or what job to choose or wisdom on who to date or who to marry. Wisdom on home choices. We, we're all seeking out wisdom. I think we all can humbly admit that we don't feel like we have enough wisdom. The reality is, is that we, we have the world at our fingertips to, to get wisdom. Many of you are old enough to remember. Remember the world before the internet? Right? Some of you, have, you've never known a world without the internet. But many of you are old enough to remember a world without the internet. You know, back in the 80s, when I was, a, now my boys do school projects and everything is just online. But, you know, when I was a kid, we had like encyclopedias on the bookshelf. And you had to go pull out this encyclopedia and you're just like fumbling through it. And you're, you went to the library, you actually had to pull out a filing cabinet and look at an index card to find one book. And then you, you know, you find it and you go find this one book. I mean, it took forever. Now, the whole world, we don't have to leave our chair at all. The whole world's at our fingertips where we can seek whatever wisdom we want. You want parenting wisdom? You want financial wisdom? You want uh, marriage wisdom? Any kind of wisdom you want, it's right there at your fingertips. But my hope is that when we come not to this, but to this, we say, where did he get such wisdom? I have never seen wisdom like this. Where did this man get such wisdom? I pray that when you need wisdom, you would go to the source, the true source. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. There is no wisdom like Jesus' wisdom. Number two, try to discern what are people's preconceived notions of Jesus and subsequent offenses. Try to discern what are people's preconceived notions of Jesus and subsequent offenses. When, when Jesus came into the synagogue in his hometown, the people had preconceived notions of Jesus. They, what was their preconceived notion? We know you. You're a carpenter. Notice when it says, is not this the carpenter? What's implied in that statement is not simply that Jesus is a carpenter, but that he is only a carpenter. He is nothing more than a carpenter. Is not this the carpenter? They have a preconceived notion of who Jesus is. They, they say, we know your family. And the reason they are offended is because in their mind, they have this, this, this notion of this carpenter is presuming to tell me how I should live my life. Now, when we go out into the world, when we go to the lost world, to our classmates, our family, our friends, wherever we go, people have preconceived notions of who Jesus is. 
Maybe they think that he is simply a religious leader. No different than Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha, Gandhi, Mother Teresa. He's just another figure in this long list of people. Maybe they think Jesus is just a historical figure. He's just another man who lived. It's like Joseph Smith or, or whoever. People have preconceived notions. And then here's the danger is that when we tell them that he is not simply this, that he is the savior of the world, he is their creator, he is the king of this universe, inevitably they're offended. They're offended at Jesus. We must remember they are not offended at us. They are offended at Jesus because who is this man that presumes to tell me how I can live my life, who I can marry, who I can love, what I can and can't do? Who are you to tell me how I have to live my life? Inevitably, people are offended at Jesus. And so when we go to share the gospel, one of the things, one of the legworks that we have to do when we're sharing the gospel is we need to try to discern what are people's preconceived notions of Jesus. Like, who, who do they, maybe even starting there, rather than us telling them, asking them, who do you think Jesus is? Because that's going to be important because that's going to dictate what, what is it about Jesus that offends them. Something offends them. These, these Nazarites are offended at Jesus. And we would do well to ask ourselves, what is your preconceived notion of Jesus and subsequent offense as a result of that? Number three, don't let familiarity breed contempt with Jesus. Don't let familiarity breed contempt with Jesus. You guys ever heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? All right, some of you, I got a few head nods. Uh, okay. Uh, what does that phrase mean? It means that the more you become familiar with someone, the more you begin to dislike them. Now, you, if you have roommates, you know this. Even if you're married, you know this. Why? You see, it's very easy to extend grace to people when you don't know them. If I don't know you all that well, I can extend grace to you, and you can extend grace to me because there's not a, lot, there's not a familiarity there. But when you begin to become familiar with someone, you begin to develop some level of contempt. All these little things they do get on your nerves and, and they begin, you begin to develop a contempt for them. This is what the idea is. Jesus comes into Nazareth and the people have a contempt for him. Why? Because they're familiar with him. They say, we, we, we know who you are. We watched you grow up. We watched you run around the streets. We watched you work with your dad. We... And their familiarity bred a contempt for Jesus. Now, this is not something that only happens in the lost world. This also can happen in Christians as well. How does it happen with Christians? So often we may come to Jesus. We may come to a sermon. We may come to the Bible. We may come to um, a church service, a teaching, and say, I already know this. I know who he is. I know that about him. Yes, I know that about Jesus. I, I know who he is. Familiarity may not just breed a contempt. It may also breed an apathy, an indifference. We no longer come to Jesus and we are in awe. 
We're, we are not in wonder of who this man is because he's so familiar. This is so dangerous, especially if you grow up in the church or if you faithfully attend church after year after year after year, you come and there's such a familiarity there that that familiarity does not breed a wonder. It breeds a, an indifference. I already know this. I've heard this story. I already know this about God. What else do you have? Do you have any special, let's, do you have any special new insight into this? Church family, don't let familiarity breed contempt with Jesus. Fight against it. Four. The person who doubts must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. James 1.7. The person who doubts must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. James 1.7. Jesus could do no mighty work there. It wasn't that there wasn't a mighty work to be done there. Nazareth has sick people just like everybody. Nazareth has dead people just like everybody. Nazareth has demon-possessed people just like everybody. They, they, they have plenty of mighty works to be done there, but Jesus could not do any mighty work there because of their doubt, their lack of faith. You know, it, there's, a, there's a great uh, um, debate that goes on uh, among denominations about the role of faith when we ask things right? One, one side of the spectrum is, is that, you know, we, we ask and we have faith and we claim it, we name it and claim it. That's one side. The other side of the spectrum is, I hope, I mean, I don't know if God can do this. There's a, there's a lack of faith there. Or we doubt if God is going to give us what is best. That's why we're so anxious. You realize that, right? You know, you, you know why we're so anxious? It, we doubt whether God will give us his best. James says that when we ask the Lord, he says, let him ask in faith. Why? Without doubting. Because the person who doubts, is, it's, like a, it's like a wave that's tossed by the wind. He, he is an unstable man, double-minded in all his ways. Now, let's be clear. I am not suggesting that if we ask something in faith, that God will always do whatever we ask. That's, there, are other, there are other criteria. We have to ask in Jesus' name. We have to ask according to his will. And even then, you know, God, God is still sovereign. But I am suggesting this, that if we ask without faith, James says we should not suppose that he would answer anything that we, said, we ask. That we see here that, that Jesus is un, he is not permitted to do any mighty work because they do not have faith. Have you ever considered that it is possible, possible, that the thing that you have been asking the Lord for over and over again, the reason you do not have it is because you doubt It's possible, that's why. I'm not saying it is. The person who doubts must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. James 1, 7. Number five. 
There is a difference between great faith, little faith, and no faith. There is a difference between great faith, little faith, and no faith. When we read the Gospels, we see these categories. And we, we would do well to make sure that we have these categories uh, in our thinking. There's a category of great faith. We see a couple examples of that in the Gospels. Uh, one is the centurion that I mentioned already. When, G, when the centurion sent some servants to go to Jesus uh, to come and heal his servant, his prized servant at home, Jesus is on his way to come heal them, heal him. And then the centurion stops him before he gets to his home and he says, look, you don't have to come to my home. I know how this authority thing works. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel as this. Remember the Canaanite woman? She has a daughter who is uh, uh, sick. She comes to Jesus. Now she's a Canaanite. And she comes to him, she says, Lord, will you come heal my daughter? And Jesus says, it is not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. Oof. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the children's table. And he says to her, oh, woman, great is your faith. There is a category for great faith. Then there is a category for little faith. We see this in the, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, why are you anxious? Why are you so anxious about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear? Oh, you of little faith. Or the story we looked at a few weeks ago on the, the boat and the, the, the wind and the waves and the disciples come to Jesus and they, they're, they're, they're so worried and they're scared. And Jesus says to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith faith or even the disciples when they um they forgot to bring bread and they're like jesus says you know and they're like oh my gosh like we forgot to bring bread and jesus says why are you discussing among yourselves that you didn't bring bread oh you of little faith or even peter when peter steps out of the boat and he begins walking on the water He's walking on the water. He's doing it. And then he starts to look at the, the wind and the waves and he begins to sink and Jesus grabs him by the hand and he looks at him and he says, why did you doubt? Oh, you of little faith. So there's a category of great faith. There's a category of little faith. And then there's a category of no faith. Now, what we see here is not little faith. It's certainly not great faith. But it's not even little faith. It is no faith. This word for unbelief means no faith. Now, there is a degree between great faith and little faith. That is a matter of degree. But there is a difference between little faith and no faith. It is okay in one sense if we have little faith. Faith. Remember, Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain be uprooted and planted in the sea. God can work with little faith. God will work with little faith. But God will not work with no faith. He won't do it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So yes, we're all striving for great faith. And yes, maybe we're not there, and it's okay 
And if our faith is little, but we must be so diligent to make sure that we are not standing in no faith, unbelief. Because God will not work with that. Six, we are called, sent, and empowered. We are called, sent, and empowered. Look at what Jesus says in verse 7. He called the twelve, began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. I want to look at those individually. We are called. Jesus calls the twelve just as... uh, He calls them to salvation. He also calls them to ministry. No different from us. He calls us. We are called. Just as Jesus walked by the sea and he saw Peter and Andrew and James and John fishing and Jesus called to them and said, come, follow me. And they followed him. Just as he passes Levi in his tax booth, he says to Levi, come, follow me. And he got up from his tax booth and he followed him. We are called nobody comes to jesus of their own accord he calls us he calls us out of darkness and says come follow me we are sent not only are we called we are sent you know i I imagine the disciples i wonder what they felt when they were sent out jesus had given them instructions of matthew he says i'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves Okay, can we just stay with you, Jesus? Or can you come with us? I wonder how they felt. It's time to send them out. You see, the story of Mary and Martha, I love the story of Mary and Martha. The point of Mary and Martha is not to say that Martha is wrong all the time. It's to say that she's wrong at one particular time. In other words, we, you know, Part of us want to be Mary all the time. I just want to sit at the feet of Jesus. But Jesus inevitably comes to us and says, you can't sit at my feet forever. You need to go. There's work for you to do. I need to send you out. It is good to sit at the feet of Jesus when he's present. And there's coming a day where we will sit at his feet forever and ever. But right now we are sent out. As sheep in the midst of wolves, we are sent out. So yes, we come home into our closet and we pray and we sit at the feet of the Jesus. We go to our Father. But let's not forget we are also sent. We have been sent out. We've been commissioned by Jesus. There is work to do. And we are empowered. We are called. We are sent. We are empowered. This phrase here, he says, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, there are two ends of the spectrum here that I think probably people need to hear this. One side is um, there are some people who believe, some Christians, who they, they would never say this, but if you were to peel back the layers of their heart, that they derive their power, their authority from experience, degrees, age, Maturity, that what gives them power is these things. And we must remember if that is us or if that is our temptation, we derive power from Jesus. 
Whatever authority, whatever power we have in ministry, it is not from ourselves. It is from above. We have been given authority. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. The disciples need to be reminded of that. Remember when they tried to cast out a demon? And they're like, they're so confused. They're like, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, because, uh, he doesn't say this, but essentially what he's getting at is that you're doing it in your own strength. This kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. This isn't on demand, guys. So often, you know, we can do ministry so much that we begin to believe the lie that it's on demand. Just crank out disciples, crank out worship songs, crank out sermons on demand. This will produce fruit, right? We must remember that our power comes from above. We are empowered by him and only by him. That's one side. Here's the other side. Perhaps we think, I can't do this. You ever had somebody ask you to share the gospel, even on a Friday night, and you turned it down because you thought you couldn't do it? I can't do that. You ever had somebody ask you to disciple somebody and you thought, I, I can't do that? I don't have power to do that. I, I, don't, I don't have enough training, I don't have enough experience. I can't go share the gospel with my mom. You have been empowered. If you are in Christ, you have power, whether you know it or not. Jesus says in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Do you know what, you, I know nobody is consciously saying this, but when you testify that you don't have power, you know what you're actually saying? I don't have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit, you have power. You have been empowered. There is nothing you can't do that Jesus has commanded you to do. Nothing. You can do it. We have been called, we have been sent, we have been empowered. Seven, we don't have to live as monks, but nor should we live as millionaires. We don't have to live as monks, but nor should we live as millionaires. I love these instructions that Jesus gives here when he says, um, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money. In their belts, wear sandals, don't put on two tunics. I remember when I was talking to a former member, we had a former member at our church who's no longer here, but he, he was reading this passage and he came to me uh, one morning for discipleship. And he, and he was sincere when he asked us, he said, I'm reading this and I'm wondering, am I in sin for having more than one pair of shoes? Am I in sin that I have a change of clothes in my closet? He was, he was serious. And I said, no, no. Jesus is not teaching us here that we are to live as monks. He's not preaching asceticism. We know this because so, somebody's got to own homes to put these people up in. People have to own homes to put them up in. Uh, people have to have jobs and, and have a pantry to have food. Where are they going to get bread from people putting them up? Paul is dependent on people to put him up. So we are not 
called to live as monks. These are very specific instructions that Jesus gives to these disciples in this context. Don't take this to say that this means, you know, if I have, I need one, you know, I can't have any money in my pocket. I can't have uh, uh, more than one pair of shoes and I can't have more than one jacket or one uh, change of clothes. That's not what Jesus is saying. We are not called to live as monks. But nor should we live as millionaires. I think there is something to glean here from what Jesus is saying. Why does Jesus give them these instructions? Why does he tell them that they are to go out this way because I think Jesus wants them to be set apart. You see, so often we think about being holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. Not only does it be set apart, it means set apart in behavior, right? We often think of like sexual immorality, idolatry. I'm to be set apart, drunkenness. I'm to be set apart in this. We are also to be set apart in our lifestyle. In other words, the way that we live should look different than the world. That if somebody looks at us, because when Jesus sends them out, the point that Edward was making is that if they go out and they've got all this gold and silver and they've got like a bag full of clothes and, and it would testify, where is your trust? Where is, what are you truly trusting in? You see, the world has sold us a lie that we need to create a life for ourselves where we never have to worry. You know what happens when you don't have to worry? You don't have to have faith either. You never have to have faith. So when we read these instructions, we would do well to ask ourselves, does my lifestyle testify more to my lifestyle? When people see me, do they testify, man, I wish I could be you. Or does it testify more to the gospel? We are to live in such a way that it testifies to the gospel, not to the fact that we are comfortable and we've made it. Eight, when to stay and when to shake off is a matter of prayer, wisdom, and discernment. When to stay and when to shake off is a matter of prayer, wisdom, and discernment. And Jesus tells them that when they go into a town, if they will not receive them, if they will not listen to them, he says, you are to shake the dust off your feet and to uh, leave. And, and that, that, that action is a testimony against them. Now, does this mean that if I get called to a family dinner and I try to share the gospel with my parents and they reject me, am I to go... Is that what I'm to do? When do we stay? When do we shake off? It is a matter of prayer, wisdom, and discernment. We see both in, in Acts. Remember earlier the passages I read, when, when Paul went to Poseidon Antioch, they stirred up persecution against them. And what did Paul do? He left that town. He shook the dust off his feet, and he went on to Iconium. Now, God didn't stop him. But when Paul went to Corinth, same thing. The Corinthians rejected him. And Paul said... Your blood be on your own heads. I'm through with you Jews. I'm going to the Gentiles. And God came to him at night and said, do not leave. I have many in this city who are my people. Stay. And Paul stayed there for 18 months sharing the gospel with them. Now I point this out to say 
that when to stay and when to shake off is a matter of prayer, wisdom, and discernment. Do not think that you should never shake the dust off your feet. There are some people who have determined that they're going to just make this person or this group of people their mission field and, they're, and, 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 and they just stay there. Now that may be wrong. It would have been wrong for the disciples to stay in a town. When Jesus said, if they don't receive you, move on. If they said, well, no, no, Lord, Lord, we, no, we can't move on. Like we have to stay here and share the gospel with them. No, you need to move on. There is a time and a place to move on. Because there are other lost people that God is calling you to share the gospel with. And there's a time and a place to stay. That sometimes you share the gospel and this person rejects you and you want to wring your hands clean of it. You want to say, you know what? I'm through with you. Just like the Corinthians, I'm through with you. I'm not going to invest in you anymore. I've had it. And God may be saying, stay, stay, stay and continue. William Carey stayed in India for seven years before he got his first convert. Seven years now, some people think that was wrong. Some people think it was right. You be the judge. You will have to be the judge in your own life. Whether to stay or whether to shake off is a matter of prayer, wisdom, and discernment. And last point, number nine. We may not be able to cast out demons or to heal the sick, but we certainly can preach a message of repentance. We may not be able to cast out demons or heal the sick, but we certainly can preach a message of repentance. Um, there's, a, there's an ongoing debate in Christian circles um, between continuationist and cessationist. Real quick, continuationists believe that every gift in the New Testament is still applicable today. So healings, exorcisms, miracles, all these things still apply today. Cessationists say that that was only for the, the early church and those don't exist anymore today. Um, I don't want to get into that debate this morning because ultimately it doesn't matter. Ultimately, you know, whether we can cast out demons or not. I, somebody asked me one time, I've told this story before. Somebody once came in on a Friday night. They asked me, they, they said, uh, that they, it was a wife. She said, she thought her husband had a demon. Asked me, could I cast it out? I, I, my answer was, I, I don't know. I've never tried. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think I can. I never saw him again. To heal the sick. We may not, you know, um, maybe some of you can heal the sick. Maybe in your prayers, God answers through your prayers and heals the sick. My niece healed. One of y'all's got the gift of, of healing. But whether we can cast out demons, whether we can heal the sick, here's what we all can do. We all can preach a message of repentance. This is something universally every Christian can do. We can all preach a message of repentance. All of us can go to our family and our friends and tell them to repent. Because Jesus Christ has died and rose again and offers you eternal life. So don't get hung up on whether you look at this and say, I would love to be able to cast out demons. I would love to be able to heal the sick. I would love it. But I can do something far more eternal God has given me keys to the kingdom. 
to preach a message of repentance that people may be saved and have eternal life. Let's pray.